Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the divine plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is the word of the Lord. Today we are going to talk about the everlasting covenant and its relation to water baptism, and how water baptism is now the visible sign of entrance into that covenant. And we have uh, discussed these things before. However, I thought it fitting for a number of reasons, which I'll explain very briefly. One is, it is right and good to be reminded of the things of the faith, especially those core doctrines which are foundational 
And so in discussing baptism, it is often the case that we repair or reform wrong ideas about the nature of baptism, its effect, uh, its prescription, that is God's commandment for it, as well as who it is to be administered to. And most importantly, what I, what I hope to impress upon you today is the attitude of charity that we must have at the core of baptism, being that as we confessed in the Nicene Creed today, there is one baptism. We, although there are differences in the visible church uh, from time to time and certain branches have warred against each other, uh, there is one true church. Although we are not able to perceive the true church, we are able to understand and see and identify the visible church. And so there is, I'm hoping to convey a spirit of charity and unity even as we begin to discuss what has historically been a, div- a divisive issue. Um, and so just at the onset, I, I want to encourage you that the, the real aspect of baptism that is important is not the outside elements of it, but rather what it testifies to, what it points to. And so uh, our training through reading the Bible and experiencing signs and pointers, types, those will all come to play today. So I want to look first at what the everlasting covenant is. And the everlasting covenant, as I understand it, and I believe the Bible teaches, is an eternal covenant which God progressively unveiled throughout his time working with the patriarchs at first, and then with the prophets and the kings, with the judges, with those who were installed as leaders of Israel. And that everlasting covenant came to final fruition with the unveiling of the kingdom coming at the coming of the king. And that kingdom which he brought remains and persists. That kingdom is not yet, but it is now. It is now and still coming. It is a kingdom which he brought with him, ushered in, instituted, and that kingdom speaks of the manifestation of the reign of that king, which is the principal point of the covenant. God gave the covenant to establish the reign of Christ on the earth. And that covenant is the context in which his reign is expressed. I want to talk about what baptism isn't and is. Notice I said isn't and is, not is and isn't, although that would sound better. I want to dispel some uh, misconceptions of what baptism does and what baptism is. And so having discussed the negative aspects of baptism, that is, what baptism isn't, then we'll discuss what does baptism actually mean according to the scriptures. I want to look at the necessity of faith. Um, Every baptism that takes place must be done in faith. It must be done in a response to the covenant promises of God. And so uh, in discussing these things, I want to dispel some common objections to paedo-baptism, not in a way that is condemning those who don't either know anything about it or have not actually engaged with the ideas or arguments, but in a way that is helpful. The New Testament commands the church of God to be like-minded, to be filled with charity to their brothers and sisters, to not dishonor certain parts of the body, even though they deem them less honorable. And Paul, in fact, says all the more they deserve more honor. That is to say, we put coverings over the parts of our body which are less public, less seemly, in order to make them more honorable. This is the way that we must approach topics that we may disagree with our brothers and sisters about. And so I want to help us be of one mind. My purpose today is not to justify the fact that uh, I would be, that I'm going to be bringing my daughter to be baptized today. And in fact, if you have been at this church, 
you may have already heard this message, but I'm not going to point out which parts are new and which parts aren't new. That will be left as an exercise to the reader. Nevertheless, the point is not to justify myself, but rather to allow our church to have an understanding of these things so that we would be able to, without any disingenuous suppression of, of feelings that are strong-held or ideas that are strong-held, we might be able to be of one mind in charity and in love. Not in order to convince everyone, not in order to, to shame someone who doesn't know or doesn't understand, or even after understanding you still disagree with, that's not the point. That The point is not to belittle or denigrate or uh, anything at, at all, but rather to call us up into maturity, and also that maturity being presently uh, demonstrated in the unity of the faith, the unity of the faith. And so be, by focusing on the unity of the faith, we move past the common hindrances where we get stuck on the manner of baptism and we get to the object of baptism. That is God's covenant purpose for family. And then finally, not losing the center. What is the central thing that baptism speaks of and talks about? And it's the case that both paedo-baptists and credo-baptists uh, both focus on the center, which is Christ, not the water. So, uh, nevertheless, getting into the beginning, our church has a great history and life together of pedo communion, and I'll define my terms at this point. Pedo just simply means child or infant. Uh, it doesn't mean uh, it doesn't mean necessarily just an infant. It also can mean a child. Uh, it really is a term for anyone basically under what we now call a teenager. Um, and, and so our, our church has a wonderful, rich history of practicing paedo-communion. That is to say, the parents of children, those parents being believing parents, are permitted to bring their children to the table to partake in the elements. Now, we are not teaching that you have to give tiny little babies communion. That's not what paedo-communion is. Um, for, I know for a fact that that would actually be a bad thing. Before I had my daughter, I didn't realize that little infants actually don't drink water. They just drink, you know, milk. And I, I never, that had never processed. But we don't give infants communion, but we do permit children to come to the table. The reason we do that, at least in our experience here, is based on the fact that we understand children to be partakers of the covenant. And so understanding that, it's important to see that the sacraments of Christ church both communicate and are filled with aspects, reminders of God's grace. When we discuss the things that Christ has given to the church, we namely call them sacraments, and most of the time in the Protestant churches, we talk about their existing two sacraments, those sacraments being water baptism and the Eucharist or the table or communion. And so those two things being given to the covenant people, we understand that children be, belong at the table. That's something that we have empathy for, and you may have never processed why that is the case. You're just, if you're a member of this church, you've seen it, and you, you kind of, you know, have understood that it's part of our culture. I want to provide the justification not only for that, but also for the fact that we bring our children to be baptized as well. We can, it's permitted. And so, understanding the ideas of the covenant, I want to ask you to, along with Paul's command to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, I would ask that you would be open-minded as we explore these things. I believe there's a rich demonstration of the grace of God operating through time and history to form a people, not just an individual. And in fact, when our culture at large is going through 
revolutions in unity and, and breaking up both on racial lines, young and old lines, on lines of economics, whether rich or poor, there could be nothing more precious and sweet but that the gospel would contain a message to a culture that God has called a people together. And so understanding that God's covenant involves a people, I believe we'll see something wonderful about the nature of baptism and really what that says about the gospel, not just about the baptism. So when God made an everlasting covenant to Abraham, he promised Abraham that through Abraham's seed or offspring, singular, he would bless all the families of the earth. Now that seed or offspring was not Isaac, but that seed or offspring was in Isaac. And God promised Abraham, and he himself was the one who performed it. He was the one who caused the faith to be taken up by generation after generation. Some generations strayed, some generations returned. He was the one at at work preserving that commandment. He gave a sign to Abraham in the giving of this commandment at the same time that circumcision was to be performed on all men, whether they be servants or sons within Abraham's house. Now clearly, we see the very beginning aspect of the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That sign was to be administered to children. And I want to make some allusions or parallels from that. First of all, these children were in the covenant by the fact that their parents were in the covenant. Think about this for a second. You do not ask an eight-day-old child if he wishes to worship Yahweh or not. Circumcision was the sign of the promise and therefore the sign of the gospel. Paul argues that Abraham was not given some sort of legalistic law-based covenant thing, which most of us, you know, are tempted to think about Moses' covenant, but rather that that was a preaching of the gospel. The book of Hebrews also says that Abraham warred by faith to take hold of the promises. And so the promise was given to Abraham. That promise has a rich history and tradition. This does not begin with Abraham. It actually goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, wherein God, in cursing the seed of the serpent, he said that there would be one coming from the woman, her seed would rise up, and he would crush the serpent's seed on his head. And so there's this already in, before the context of Abraham, there's already a promise of a redeemer. Theologians call this the Proto-Evangelion, that is, the gospel preached beforehand, which is the, the very phrase that, that Paul uses in discussing how it is that Abraham received the promise. The gospel, the Evangelion, was preached beforehand. The very seed or kernel of the idea was all the way at the garden. And so as Paul teaches in Galatians, this covenant that was given to Abraham, it was not set aside or modified, but rather it was expanded. It moved from applying to Abraham to applying to all of Abraham's children, namely Israel. And it's important to remember when we say the word Israel, we are talking of the descendants of Israel. Now that might be confusing, but what I'm trying to get to is that the nation of Israel is so named based on Israel's name, that is Jacob. Jacob was called Israel in the wrestling with God. And this was the calling for the people of God. They were to be people who 
wrestled with God. Now, that prophetic name is not to be understood wrongly. They were to wrestle with God so as to take hold of the promise. That's what we're going to be seeing in our future weeks when we return back to the the Hebrew series is that we have to take hold of the promise. That taking hold is the obedience of faith. It is not a work in itself. It is not a self-directed work. It is not a work that's commanded, but rather it's a response to the promises of God. And understanding that response, we see Abraham's obedience. Before circumcision is commanded in Leviticus 12, it's commanded in Genesis 15. What I want to say is that the law of Moses did not create circumcision. And therefore, it is not uh, an understanding of circumcision being a work performed in the flesh in order to merit righteousness. It was rather a response to the commandment of God. Abraham trusted God, he believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham, in the book of Hebrews, is said to have believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Because he knows that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Why does Abraham take his son to the mountain? Because he trusts. He trusts in God. And he is one who is confident. And in fact, that very belief that Abraham had is the kernel of the gospel. That is the faith not only in Jesus Christ, but that was the faith of Jesus Christ. When we see Jesus going to the mountain, that is to say the place of the skull, Golgotha, he was trusting in the one who judges rightly and therefore was able to raise him from the dead. At the very start of the church, that is the day of Pentecost, God fulfills the promise to Abraham by bringing in a large number of Gentiles. These people who are in the city of Jerusalem, some of them were Jewish, some of them were from the surrounding neighborhoods and surrounding areas in Israel, but most of them were from the surrounding nations. And these people were Hebrew-minded Greeks. They were Hellenistic Jews, if you will. That is to say, they were Greeks by culture, they were Greeks by philosophy, but they had begun to enter into the covenant of God because the synagogue system had rippled throughout the entire Mediterranean region. It was not the case that synagogues only existed in Israel, but these were people who came to Jerusalem in order to worship God and obey the commandment to come to the city that he would set his name on, and they came in order to fellowship and feast with him. And so they were there because they were obeying God's commands. They were there because they had faith. And although they were there, they did not understand the righteousness of God, as Paul argues, so they set, aside, they, they set it aside by substituting their own. Then they hear what has happened, and they repent and believe. Now that repentance is important, but nevertheless, it's to be understanding that God was filling his covenant, fulfilling his covenant at the day of Pentecost. That really is kind of the elemental point. The sending of the Spirit was the outward sign or inward reality that attended to that covenant fulfillment, but that covenant began to be fulfilled. Now, after this, some Jews arise who do not actually trust in Christ, who do not believe the gospel, and they start to persecute the church, saying that these new Gentile believers, if they wish to be put right before God, they must receive circumcision. And what this is, Uh, this is a repudiation or denial or rejection of the gospel. What they're saying is, in order for them to be righteous before God, they require something other than Christ. That is, they require some act to be done by a man. 
The apostles then gave the testimony at Acts 15 how God had baptized these Gentiles in the Spirit after having baptized them in water. And so the water baptism and the baptism in the Spirit are shown to be one element of the baptism by which people are brought into the community of God. The church clearly taught that circumcision was not necessary for these new Gentile believers. If you remember, there's this great confrontation, and Paul talks about it elsewhere, saying that he had to confront Peter to his face, and it says, Paul says to, that Peter stood condemned. Why? Because what Peter was doing is, Peter was uh, preaching to one church of Jew and Gentile, but then when he went to eat, he was only eating with the Jews, and he would not eat with the Gentiles. And so Paul confronts him publicly before the elders of the church, before the assembly of the church in Jerusalem, and says to him that he's denying the gospel. Peter, thanks be to God, does repent. He, he relents and he accepts Paul's wisdom, and the Holy Spirit then confirms these things through what uh, the Jerusalem Council decides. Nevertheless, the question is, why is circumcision not required anymore? The reason why circumcision is not required for the Gentiles is because in Christ's commandment of the Great Commission, he said to go and preach the gospel, perform signs and wonders, teach everything that I have commanded you to observe, and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not circumcise. Christ himself has the authority to change the mode or outward sign or seal of covenant admission. They do not have to be circumcised, but now baptized. And Paul talks about this, saying that Christ, when he tore down the, the, the veil in the temple, which we talked about in one of our songs today, that, that veil was a poetic reminder of a dividing wall which stood between Jew and Gentile. Now Christ said, do not think that I come to ab abolish or abrogate or destroy the law, but rather to put it into force. And we rightly understand that when Christ is speaking of not setting aside the law, but rather fulfilling the law, we mean, and we understand it, him to mean that he totally fulfilled every type symbol, sign, and pointer that was spoken about him in the old covenant system that was all fulfilled in not only the person of Christ and his incarnation, but also his ministry that he did publicly, and finally his atonement on the cross, resurrection from the dead, and ascension to the right hand of the Father. All that the Old Testament was speaking of in the law of Moses was fulfilled to the letter. Now that means that the moral law is still in, apply, is still in effect. It does not mean that those cultural provisions which taught Israel holy, unholy, clean, unclean, those have been set aside, having been fulfilled by Christ. That's what we're going to be seeing in the book of Hebrews when we return back to our series. Nevertheless, the New Testament epistles that were written to these new churches show that circumcision has moved from the flesh to the heart. Circumcision was not done away with. We still have to be circumcised, but the necessity of that circumcision is an inward reality, not merely an external reality. Christians are now sealed in baptism, as Colossians tells us. The change of the sign of the covenant from circumcision to baptism was absolutely clear. That same passage in which Paul is saying there is no longer Jew or Gentile, he then moves on to slave or free, male or female. The sign, which was only for men, in the Old Covenant has now been included to include women. Both men and women are baptized in the New Covenant. 
There is no explicit, let alone veiled mention that there was a change in those who were to be members of the covenant. Now I want you to think about this and I want you to imagine you are a first century Jew, this weird, short, somewhat, uh, you know, charismatic guy who speaks with wisdom named Paul shows up. The Bible says that Paul was probably short, so I'm encouraged by that. This, this guy who, he was a Pharisee, he's, he's a Jew, but he also is a Roman citizen, and he's well-versed in Greek rhetoric and Greek eloquence. He shows up to your city, and he starts telling you about this amazing gospel in which all that God had done with the nation of Israel throughout all time has finally come true in Christ, that God came and became incarnate in the man Jesus Christ. He not only was a perfect man, but he was God in our midst. And that person was killed by the very people he came to rescue. And in that killing, he then, after rising from the dead, he then gave a commandment to go and preach the gospel to all peoples. But instead of including all of the history and all of the ways of of thinking with regard to who is in the covenant, there's been a major change. Even though the gospel's greater, even though it's more effective, your kids can't come. Now think about that, how that would hit you. There's a discontinuity. Paul, you're saying that the gospel is greater. The promises have been fulfilled. God's grace has been multiplied. The Holy Spirit's been poured out, but children are not yet party to the covenant. They were in the old covenant, but they're not anymore. So at this point, I'm now faced with a dilemma. Do I really want to go there? Because now my children can't come before God until something happens for them later. Brothers and sisters, it is my opinion that that sort of dichotomy, which does not exist in the scriptures, would have shown up in the historical record. That is to say, the gospels are somewhat attending to this, but the epistles are filled with objections from the Judaizers, from the Gnostics, from those who are weak in faith. And we hear over and over again, there's this war against the church coming in that these Judaizers say circumcision must still be applied. And my question is this, although it's an argument from silence, I believe it's the loudest argument from silence I've ever heard, there's no textual evidence to see what you would expect in uproar that children are no longer in the covenant. I would be absolutely surprised if it was the case that the old old covenant mode of including families has been set aside. It would show up in the New Testament epistles. There would be at least confusion and therefore it would be addressed in instruction, if not people still advocating that God would not change this mode. And in fact, when we look at, as we're going to very briefly, when we look at Malachi, that's actually one of the whole points of the new covenant. Baptism is not magic. Let's get to what baptism isn't. Baptism is not magic. Even those who believe in credo-baptism, sometimes uh, they slip into a wrong understanding of what baptism is, and it's not magic. Baptism is not priestcraft. You know, we talk about witchcraft, but it's not priestcraft. Baptism is not a ceremony that we perform to create an inward reality that does not yet exist. Baptism does not save you apart from a living faith. Notice I say apart from a living faith. Baptism does not regenerate. Baptism does not perform the cleansing that can only come from above. John 1 says that the children that God had gave the right to become children of God, that they were born of the will of God. 
And so by entering into baptism, we can't just magically make that happen. Likewise, being a baptized member of the visible church does not guarantee salvation. Let me just say that again because I feel like that, that is subtly believed. Your attendance at GCF week by week does not guarantee you salvation. If you come before God and are a party to the things of the faith, are, you're party to the life of the church, you are a member of the visible aspects of the life of the community, that does not mean that there is an inward reality going on in your life. Now, Paul says the deeds of the flesh are evident, and in fact, they are. Over time, it will become very clear whether or not there is an inward reality. But for a time, for a season, even for many years, if not decades, people can and have lied day by day as they live in a church community that they really profess faith and they don't, or that they really have repented and yet they harbor secret sins, which they have no intention of repenting of. This is what it means for the New Testament when the, when the epistles are, are filled with warnings that sheep are among you, but after that comes wolves. Jesus, in fact, said, I'm sending you out like sheaves, a sheep in the midst of wolves. Paul later says that there are wolves who have snuck in. Those wolves are not true sheep on the inside. They're truly wolves. They look like sheep on the outside. In the words of Keith Green, a wonderful musician from the 1970s, Amen. going to church does not make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. <laughs> I would encourage you, if you've never heard of Keith Green, go on YouTube. It's amazing. He's a, he's a wonderful worship musician. What his point is, is that you can't simply just go to church and have religious things about you and think that that makes you a Christian. It does not. And in fact, that I, I, I would be shocked to, to know how much that does happen. Peter shows the heart of, and meaning of baptism. That is the core and central aspect of baptism. In 1 Peter 3, 21 through 22, he says, baptism, which corresponds to this, and that's a relative pronoun to the argument that he just made about the death and resurrection of Christ. Baptism, which corresponds to this or is done in response to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Baptism is primarily a response to that happening or that being promised to happen. And so, Paul, uh, sorry, Paul, Peter is saying that baptism is done in response to the action of Christ, not in order to create an event an event. Peter's saying that insofar as baptism comes alongside saving faith, which is the thing which is appealing to God and trusting in the suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, then it is beneficial. Now, again, I'm not saying that baptism performs a regeneration, but rather baptism makes you party to the covenant. That's essentially the core aspect. So drawing on the teachings of scripture, the Westminster Confession of Faith teaches succinctly as succinct as possible, what baptism is. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, it was written by theologians in the Anglican Church about 400 years ago. And we do not base our arguments on creeds nor confessions, but rather they are succinct uh, writings or they are succinct tellings of what a right understanding or synthesis of the scriptures teach. 
So I'm not saying that I base my understanding of what baptism is on the creed, but rather the creed actually helps us to understand how to interpret the scripture. Someone's interpreting the scripture, namely you or I, and that person ought to interpret the scripture at least in dialogue with what the church has always taught. And the Westminster Confession of Faith is a great summary of what the church has taught. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up to God. Notice it says a sign and seal, not the actual work. A seal is a thing that represents the work. For example, when I got married, we, uh, we were married, and then afterwards, the, the marriage certificate was stamped. Does that, does that make sense? The wedding is performed, and then there's a seal on the wedding making it recognized, not making it happen. That's what signs and seals are. When you swear in an officer of the uh, government, whether it be president, Supreme Court justice, or mayor, all the way down to lowly county officials, each one of them is voted into office, either through a direct vote, as a direct democracy vote, or through a representative sample vote, the electoral college. Some people don't know what that means because they're a little afraid of college. Um, the electoral college votes in the president. That person is made the president by the people, by their vote being voiced, and then that vote is recognized in the taking and swearing of office. He is appointed to that position, he accepts that position, and therefore they schedule the proceedings of ordination of that, that person to that office. So, uh, to walk in newness, uh, sorry, uh, and is giving up of life to God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church to the end of the world. Baptism is not a sign that, that faded with the apostles. Just because he gives the command to the apostles to baptize, and it's never commanded again, even though that command was given to specific people, it persists in the church. So, being a member of the visible church does not guarantee salvation, though it does provide the member with many benefits. This is what is argued about in Romans, in the early chapters of Romans, when Paul is saying that, that the Israelites have rejected their admission to the covenant. And then the question is, well, what does it benefit them to having been, been in the covenant? And his argument is they had many benefits. They were party to the ordinances. They had the writings. They had the patriarchs. All of these things belong to them. They're part of their heritage. So this is what is a benefit of being in the church. We have such a weak understanding of the church that we almost don't have a category for understanding what baptism does because we don't see a membership of the church as doing anything. Being a part of a, of a church means that you are attending to or regularly presented with or regularly encountering the means of God's grace. And those means are the preaching of the word, fellowship at the table, discipleship and, fr and friendship, a, a wonderful thing, especially in our culture today, correction and reproof, spiritual covering and counsel. Those are your benefits as being part of the body. And it is not just a fellowship in the spirit. It has real tangible things by which you grow in grace. That is what it's meant to say when we say the means of grace. These are the way that God ordains for his people to grow and to mature. 
God called Israel out of Egypt by the splitting of the Red Sea. If you remember back to the Exodus, they are oppressed, they're under captivity, they are forced into labor, they are told that they have to make bricks without straw. I've never seen a brick without being fired and some sort of substrate in it. That would be a terrible assignment. And yet, they appeal to God, and God raises up a deliverer named Moses out from among their midst. He was a child who was hidden away. He escaped the commandment of Pharaoh to slay the innocent children, and he is raised up by God. He spends a time in the wilderness with God and is uh, ordained by God to come and lead and execute judgments against the people. The final judgment, we often think of the 10 plagues as the only aspects of the judgments that Moses brings on Egypt, but the final judgment that he brings is when he calls the water to come in and condemn to judgment the Pharaoh and his army as they pursued them. This is what God did in bringing out the people from those things which persecuted them. He caused the Red Sea to to be split. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, came out the other side, and Moses completed the deliverance by destroying the enemy. In the same way, God raises up John the Baptist, and again he calls out his people to become a new people of God through the waters of baptism. This is a retelling or a reenacting of the story that takes place by John the Baptist. John was sent by God to prepare Israel for the coming of of the Messiah. He did this in order to create a spiritual environment in which they would be ready to receive him. And in fact, if if you can imagine how poorly they did receive Christ, How much worse would it have been if God had not sent John the Baptist? John preached a message of righteousness. He he preached a message saying that the kingdom of God is coming in, that there is currently an attitude in the spirit in Israel which no one recognizes the authority of Yahweh. It's like the time in Judges when it says that there was no king in Israel. Each one of them did according to their own dictates their own law. They were their own justification for their behavior. John comes in and sets the proud and and haughty low, and he raises up the lowly, and he puts them right. He, He comes in as a winnowing factor in the culture, and he creates a spiritual readiness in the people by warning them and encouraging them to repent because God's king is coming. He's coming, and he's on his way. He says that God's kingdom is about to break in. And the reason why is because he says God's kingdom is at hand. And I would just encourage you, if you ever want to see how far away you can get your hand from you, it's not very far. God's kingdom is on the scene. It's being ushered in. It's ready to break in. And he warns them saying, get ready for God's king. They should prepare themselves for a visitation. The conviction of the Holy Spirit was so attendant to John's preaching that he sealed an inward reality that is true faith and repentance with an outward sign. In Matthew 3, 5 through 7, we read, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. He's so... He's so nice. We would honestly kick John the Baptist out of every one of our churches if he said, like, think about what you have, man, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Those are intense words. John the Baptist was not playing around. Note the text does not say all the men and women of Jerusalem, but rather all of Jerusalem. Now, 
I would encourage you, there probably aren't daycares in Jerusalem that are established at this point. Uh, they brought their children with them. Now, that's not the core of my argument, by the way. That isn't, that's one of those like mop-up arguments after the fact. At the same time, John does rebuke the hypocritical Pharisees for coming to be baptized. Why does he rebuke them? Because they only went out because the crowds were going out. They essentially wanted to be seen as the religious leaders of Israel. And indeed, before John came, they were recognized as that. And so they wanted to be seen as when God was on the move, these people responded. And in fact, we see this over and over again through the Gospels that the Pharisees really only do things with regard to whether the people are turning from them or not. No one baptized by John was baptized because they were self-identifying as those who have become regenerate disciples of Christ, for Christ had not yet been revealed. So the nature of John's baptism is the same as the nature of Christ's baptism. It's a continuation. John the Baptist brings baptism as a new covenant reality, and there's a little bit of overlap between John's generation, Christ's generation, and the generation of the apostles. And this baptism was not done in response to the manifestation of the incarnate Son of God. It was done in order that the people would be ready to encounter him. True repentance and baptism is a faith-filled response, trusting in the promises of God, looking forward to being able to have fellowship with him. Looking forward to being able to have fellowship with him. This is what John comes to do. He comes to create an environment by which Christ would be received. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, moving on to this aspect of of covenant family, God's major aspect in the messages given to the prophets and the apostles is the forming of godly family. We often think in terms of individual repentance. Individual repentance is uh, is vital. It's necessary. It cannot be set aside. Every person is commanded, according to the apostles, to repent. Every person is commanded to recognize Christ as king, receive his kingdom, be regenerated by faith, and receive his authority and newness of life by the outpouring of the Spirit. All people everywhere are commanded to repent. Nevertheless, God's purpose in forming people is also to form families and to form a larger people. God's rebuke through the mouth of Malachi to the men of Judah was for infidelity to their wives, which spoiled the vintage. Remember when we were discussing Deuteronomy, we talked about how God, there's this one verse that doesn't make much sense without exploring the the background for it, but God gives a command that the people of Israel, when they're making siege in the land of Canaan, which they're inheriting as the promised land, that they were not allowed to cut down any trees which bore fruit. And we understand the spiritual import of that command to be saying that God is at war with the people of Canaan because they are not bearing the fruit of righteousness. And he wants that land, God is jealous for that land to have people in it which would honor him as king and bear fruit. This is what Christ talks about in bearing fruit as well. It's the same mode. And so we see that God is desiring to bring about a fruit. He's crafting a vineyard, if you will. Just as God set up the the garden for Adam, so also in the promised land, God is forming a context in which the people would be rightly related to him in the land. And in doing this, God is tending the vineyard. Remember, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. The branches cannot bear fruit unless they are in me. If they abide in the vine, truly you will bear fruit, proving to be my disciples. God is at work 
bringing about a vintage. A vintage is all the work done in a year by a winemaker or winemaker. It's not only the cultivation of the branches and, and the roots, it's also the shading if necessary, harvesting at the correct time, administrating and washing the grapes, squishing them or crushing them, forming and collecting the juices, storing them properly. Everything done in a, in a vineyard in the entire year takes a massive amount of work, and every once in a while something happens that spoils the vintage. Bacteria or fungus get into the grapes. You leave the grapes on too long and they get scorched, or they get moldy, or there wasn't enough rain that year and they're too weak, or there was too much sun that year and they're bitter. This is what it means for a vintage to be spoiled. In Malachi, in this chapter, God is condemning the men of Judah for filling his temple or filling his altar with tears. Now, it wasn't the men who were crying, but rather the women who were crying. And God, at this point, promises to not receive their worship. Verse 14, but you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Think about that when you think about whether or not uh, marriage should be allowed at a governmental level between man and man. God's opposed to this. But it's not just that God is opposed to that perversion of marriage. He's also opposed to the perversion of marriage, which destroys the context for godly family. Look at this. Did not he make them one with a portion of their spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What was the point of God putting the spirit in the marriage of those who were of Israel marrying their wives by covenant? The point was godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God has a call and a commandment to those husbands to not be treacherous to their wives. The father's goal in marriage, the aim for marriage is godly children. And God is not ambivalent to the treatment of children, but rather he establishes families in order to bring about the next generation. This is always God's arc and God's point. And in fact, when we consider the iniquity that's going on in our country, many Christians, they say God's going to judge us for persistent abortion. He's going to judge us. There's, he's eventually going to not put up with it anymore. And brothers and sisters, I would that were, that were the case. 3,000 children will be murdered today and tomorrow and the next day. But I would just encourage you to understand that abortion itself is a judgment. Our culture is being devastated by this. And God does not wink at sin. He will judge it. He's jealous for those children. Nevertheless, what happens when people who are called by God to enter into covenantal marriage, when they <laughs> divorce through treachery, they are living like God doesn't care about the children either. It's not as if abortion is some sort of sin that's far away from us. In fact, the, tr the treatment of children and the neglect of children in covenant marriage is partly responsible for and is just like abortion at a theological level. Now, I don't, I'm convinced of better things about the church of God, and I'm convinced that one day she will wake up of her apathy concerning that issue, and she will repent. Nevertheless, it is important that we understand that God has always seen children as a response to or part of his covenant. It's in there from the beginning. 
Likewise, the thrust of Peter's triumphant end to the first public, public proclamation of the gospel is overwhelmingly familial. What, what do I mean by familial? I mean it's family-oriented. Look at this. We finally get to our reading now at the end of the message. Acts 2, verse 36, let all the house of Israel, first of all, that aspect is very important to understand, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him or presented him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 27, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So he says, this message is being declared to all the house of Israel. These people respond saying, brothers, what should we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's saying that the promise of the Father, the promise which was throughout all of the Old Testament about really recorded by Jeremiah most appropriately that he will give them a new heart of flesh in place of the heart of the stone and he will write his law upon their hearts and he will put his spirit within them Peter's saying this has been fulfilled. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Now, that's not saying that the promise is for you and your children and far off geographically. That's saying the promise is for you and for your children and for those who are down the line. Normally, when God establishes righteousness in a family, he does it in order for that righteousness to continue. Every one of you whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The whole house of Israel is notified, and the men in Jerusalem are cut to the quick. I want you to imagine, you know, a butcher going through and, and butchering a piece of meat or a cow. What, what it means to get to the quick of the issue is for the, the knife to pass through the skin, if it's not already off, through the outward flesh, through the muscle, through the sinew, all the way to the bone, past cartilage, past tendons, it gets to the heart of the matter. When they see the covenant aspect of the fact that they betrayed the very fulfillment of all the promises that they've been given, they say, what must we do? And he then says, repent, be baptized, and turn, turn to the new work of God. Peter provides the solution. God has made a covenant, and those covenant promises are directed to children's children. Think about how, how that would play out. Everything that we've received from our ancestry, we've betrayed. What do we have left? And then the response is, you have a heritage as well. You haven't just denied your inheritance. You have, but God will put that right, and then he will give you an inheritance in your children. This bears out in Paul's letter to the Corinthians concerning how families are to relate to their children. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, 14 through 16, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. The context here is there were some in Corinth who were not uh, very mature who were saying, well, are we allowed to divorce our wives now because Christ has come and we're this new creation? Has Christ's gospel and the work that Christ promised to do, has it created a new reality in me such that I'm no longer obligated to those things which I've made a, par a promise to uphold? Now, brothers and sisters, that would be wonderful. You could just rack up all this debt, get saved, and then all that debt would disappear because you're a new creation. Paul says that this is foolish thinking. He says that what you were covenanted to, Christ, the fulfillment of covenant, does not divorce you from the covenants that you've made. 
For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. He says, don't divorce. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now they had a, I think there was a kernel of righteousness in that question. They were really convinced like, okay, well, I'm married to this person who's still operating as a pagan, sacrificing to the Roman gods, whatever the context was for that particular situation. And they were wondering, can I still be married to this person? Or will I be infected by them in a, in a sin way? Uh, will I become unclean by knowing them or touching them? Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. That is a, a real confrontation with the way that we think about children most often. We think of them as uh, persisting sinners who need to get saved, right? That's the way, I, every once in a while, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Paul says, otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In, case, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. That is to say, if, you're, if your husband or wife, depending on who you're married to, if they leave, you are not commanded to you know, pursue reconciliation with them. You're let go. If they, if they walk away from the marriage, you, know, you do what you can, essentially. God has called you to peace. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The implication is clear if we press it out. How do you know, therefore, parents, if you will persist your children? Right? Now, I want you to, to look at the end of this verse on verse 14. I don't often think it's necessary to get to the Greek. We're not like, you know, in Islam, they maintain that if you don't read the Quran in Arabic, you're not practicing the right, you, you know, you, you ought to learn that. We don't have to do that as Christians. We have faithful translations made by people who work very diligently at conveying the right truth. But sometimes, if we're not paying attention to what's written, we don't understand what's actually said in the clearest of terms. In almost every other place in the New Testament, including the first chapter of this very same epistle, as, as we're going to turn to very briefly, that word, which is translated as holy at that verse, otherwise they would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy, uh, that verse, that word is always translated as saints. Now think about that for a second, in the way that you think about your children, or you think about children of believing parents, are they saints or not? Now, I just want to read from 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called to be saints, together with those who are in every place, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We baptize children of believing parents because they are saints, not to cause them to become saints. Many credo-baptists object saying that you can't guarantee that these children will grow up to become baptized. And I would say, yes, you can't. Uh, by baptized, I mean uh, faithful worshipers of Yahweh. That was a typo. You cannot guarantee that these children who you baptize will go on to persist in the faith. And I would just offer as a counterexample, a counterobjection, that is, uh, uh, I'm forgetting my Latin phrases, dear, tu quoque, neither can you. I know... Uh, Never mind, we'll talk about it later. The point being that the objection that credo-baptists make against paedo-baptism, if they're very, you know, very argumentative about their idea, is they say, well, you can't guarantee this, and I would offer back, you cannot also guarantee that people who profess faith today will persist in that faith. 
I myself have baptized. Now, my record is pretty good. Um, that's a joke. Uh, my, my record's pretty good, but I have baptized people who at the time I thought, based on my interview with them, based on the discussion that we had, it seems like there's true authentic faith here. They understand the gospel. They understand the things of the faith. And in fact, if you look at the context of Acts 2, it didn't take a long time to interview all the individuals. Uh, there is a very small test for credo baptism. And it is not the case that the credo baptist has any more confidence at all. I would say that the credo baptist has no more confidence that the professing individual rightly assesses their spiritual state than the pledge in covenant obligation of the parent to raise up their children in the faith. I believe that they are on equal footing when it comes to confidence and surety in their action. And this is the exact same for adults. We baptize them because they are professing faith. We don't, call it, we don't baptize in order for them to gain faith. Therefore, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith rightly provides that the sign and seal of the covenant be given to those who are members of the covenant. Not only those that actually do profess faith, that is adults or children who are of age sufficient that they can uh, announce their faith, not only that those that do profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. Where do you think they get that language? One or both. They get it from 1 Corinthians 7. That's not an invention of the Westminster theologians. That is a recognition of the teaching that Paul lays down in 1 Corinthians 7. So, now that we've talked about baptism, we've answered some common objections to paedo-baptism, I want to move to, her, to the center of what does baptism talk about? This is really where this becomes a gospel-focused message. Although we've been talking about the gospel the whole time, just to very clearly get to the meat of the matter, the heart of the matter. Yes, you must become mature in your knowledge of God and his ways. It is appropriate to learn from the scriptures from time to time and to change certain opinions that you have. That's okay. God does not, when you get saved, God does not say to you, you must set in stone everything you believe about every doctrine now, and then you have no room to grow. You'll just persist and go to church weekly, and that'll just be your thing that you do, but you won't need to grow. No, God requires that we grow. He requires that we have our minds renewed by the Spirit, but at the same time, you can't just every few years swap what you believe about major doctrines and vacillate back and forth. This is not a Mitt Romney religion. Some of you know who Mitt Romney is. It's not a Mitt Romney thing. You can't be a flip-flopper. They talk about people in politics flip-flopping. You can repent, right? You ought to repent. You need to repent. But you also can change your mind about things that you believe to be core doctrines. Nevertheless, you can't let those distract you from the, the center you can't make Christianity all about one particular issue. We all know that brother or that sister who is either convinced of post-millennial theology or pre-millennial theology. Jesus is coming back, brother, or it doesn't matter, brother, things are getting a lot better all the time. And it doesn't matter which side of the coin they're on. Uh, it still is a distraction. We know people who get hung up on secondary and tertiary ideas. You cannot, as the people of God, divide about this. And there have been great wars about this in the past. And by wars, I mean theological wars and sometimes actual wars, actual skirmishes. If you become knowledgeable and then become cynical about your brothers and sisters who disagree, you have achieved nothing. 
And what I mean by nothing, I mean what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if you have all knowledge and you can understand all miracles and you have insight into all the things of the faith, but you do not have love, you are nothing. You're not a benefit to the body of Christ if you don't know how to present these things in a way that's humble, in a way that's encouraging, in a way that's winsome, in a way that actually builds up the body, strengthens her, gives her surety in the things of God. You have to do these things in maturity and meekness at the same time. As Christians, as the covenant people of God, we are to strive for like-mindedness while maintaining the bond of unity and the peace in the spirit. That is to say, if you create a hobby horse issue about this, if you decide I'm unconvinced or I'm convinced, either way, you cannot now make it your goal to track down all the remaining pedo-baptists and get them to con- convert or or pedo or credo-baptists. That is not your goal as a Christian. That is up to them and the Holy Spirit and the ministers of the gospel in the church that they attend, and they will come to maturity on their own. I'm, I, I love 1 John. It says that there is a, an anointing which abides in you, which will teach you all things. I believe that God is ca- causing his church to be progressively sanctified and beautified. And so it's not your mission to correct every error in your brothers and sisters. While we're learning about this, we must not lose the center, capital C center, of what this is all about. No amount of washing, whether of a young person or an old person, would accomplish anything unless that water pointed to blood. Unless that water is done in response to the blood of Christ being poured out for your behalf, unless you recognize that that is the sprinkling of blood, that is the blood of Christ on our hearts, sprinkling of our conscience, Unless that takes place, then no amount of washing profits anything. The water applied to the body is a reminder of the blood of Christ that was sprinkled on our hearts, as Hebrews tells us. It is by the blood of this eternal covenant by which we are saved, not through the waters of baptism, whether you are baptized as a young person or baptized as an old person. We, the church, have now become a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, and in Christ we have been truly blessed, not in the water, The water points merely to Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would allow us to be captivated by your covenant and that we would understand you weaving history and bringing about circumstances and ordaining the rise and fall of nations in order to create a context that your son would be well-received, not only just in his people, although they rejected him at first, some of them repented, but also that we would see you organizing the nation so that at the time of his arrival, the the gospel could spread to every place. We thank you for your historic and faithful persisting of the church through the ages. We thank you, Lord, that we are recipients of the writings, both of the prophets of old and also your apostles as they wrote letters to these newly formed churches. We thank you, God, that you've been faithful to preserve these things and that you've also invited us to fellowship with you in the spirit, but also as partakers of flesh and blood, that is namely those who are able to come to the table and fellowship with you. We pray that this would be for us, not merely an empty symbol, but that we would see it and as an outward manifestation of the promises of God. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.